Hello everyone, welcome to Econofact Chats. I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Towson University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. We're recording this on the last Friday of May 2020. Yesterday, the new data for initial unemployment claims came in, and the economy has lost 40 million jobs in the last 10 weeks. How do we resolve this? Well, today we're very excited to kick off this inaugural episode of Econofact Chats with Dan Sickle. Dan is a professor of economics at Wellesley College. Before joining Wellesley in 2012, Dan worked for more than 20 years at the Federal Reserve Board, and he served on the senior management team during the economic and the financial crisis that began in 2008. Welcome, Dan. Thanks. Good to be with you, Michael. Good to have you. So, Dan, I'd like to draw on your policy experience and your research and also the memos that you've written for Econofact to talk about the economics of the current COVID-19 crisis, and especially the resolution of the crisis. As you know, you know, recently, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jay Powell, said that the scope and the speed of this downturn are without modern precedent. And there's a famous saying, sometimes attributed to Mark Twain, that history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. So does 2020 rhyme with 2008, Dan? It does rhyme with 2008. In both cases, there was a very sudden uh, drop in economic activity, big run up in the unemployment rate. Uh, this time around, a little faster, actually a lot faster and sharper, um, but it definitely rhymes of, a, of an economic crisis. So in 2008, there was a pretty clear marked point when the crisis began, which was for 10 points, Dan? That would be Lehman Brothers. Right, right. And in, uh, in the Great Depression for another 10 points? Uh, that would be the uh, stock market crash of 1929, followed by a banking crisis. I hope and, I got bonus points for that one. Well, the banking, yeah, sure. Okay, that's fine. Um, but then, you know, for 50 points, this crisis, it's not so easy, is it? It's not so easy. It uh, developed a bit more slowly. I think in terms of the economic crisis and the financial hit, I think the pivot point is really mid-March. That was the point when states started shutting things down, when businesses started shutting down. Uh, and on March 15th, the Federal Reserve uh, had a very important meeting. They had a meeting scheduled for a few days later. They pulled it forward, made it virtual, did some really dramatic things, definitely got the attention of Main Street and Wall Street. The meeting they were supposed to have was their every six week open market committee meeting, right? Yeah, that's right. How unusual is it to actually change the date of that or to move it just a few days in advance? So in normal times, they wouldn't do it, but in times of crisis or rapidly evolving events, there's plenty of precedent for it. They did that many times in the period around the financial crisis. Uh-huh. They had these special meetings and because events became particularly acute. Um, and there, of course, you know, there are these financial moments that were sort of well-defined and you could look at bond prices or stock prices. Here, it was a little less clear, wasn't it? 
Yeah, although certainly uh, since the since the economic shutdown got underway, the stock market uh, fell very dramatically. There are a lot of stresses and disturbances in credit markets as well. Some of that has been reversed. Right, but the stock market is not the economy, as we're told time and again. And that would be a correct thing to say. Right. So continuing with the um, the rhyming theme, are there any lessons from how we got out of the Great Depression of the 30s or the Great Recession that began in 2008 that we might be able to draw on for today? Yeah, I think there are. Um, I think there really, I would say there are two things that are important for getting past the acute phase of a crisis. One is solving the underlying problem. Banking crisis in 1929, financial crisis in 2008, this time around the health crisis. So the health crisis, I mean, that's really different though, right? Because, you know, I mean, the Federal Reserve can't send out vaccines, but it can try to sort of, you know, uh, fix the financial system. Absolutely. But, you know, saying that just highlights the, the degree of uncertainty around this episode and how important it is to fix the health crisis. In the Great Depression, stock market crashes 1929, banking cri the banking system wasn't, the issues around the banking system weren't resolved until 1933. So it took a long time because they didn't resolve the underlying crisis. So we're really going to have to get to a point where the health crisis gets resolved before we're going to solve the economic crisis. So Roosevelt comes in, you know, after the election, the inaugurations are actually later at that time in our history. He comes in and says, we only th the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Now we have more to fear, don't we? Well, I think we have fear to fear. I think we also have a pandemic to fear. And again, the, the just highlights the importance of uh, with a vaccine and other public health measures, getting that under control. Right. But in both cases, I guess it's people's feelings about the economy that are going to become really important for the path that the economy takes. Yeah. And in, in 1933, uh, in the Great Depression, people didn't put money back in banks until they gained confidence in banks. And I'd argue today people aren't going to fully engage in economic activity until they feel that it's safe to be out and interacting with other people frequently. Yeah. You know, I've um, heard this period called the great lockdown, but I prefer to call it the great shutdown because, you know, lockdown implies that people are doing it only because the government says, but what we've seen is even when places open up, it's not necessarily the case that people are going to go out and go to ball games or movies or restaurants or shopping malls. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good distinction. I think it's easy to make the case that uh, somehow state governments um, issuing stay-at-home orders is the cause of the economic slowdown. It's really not. It's the virus. The, the, what the states are doing is just a response. So returning to the resolution, um, the Fed was famously blamed for deepening the Great Depression because of its policies. And then now many economists think that the Fed was really at the center of, even though it was a tepid recovery, the recovery um, from the financial collapse in the fall of 2008, which could have been much, much worse than it was. The Fed's sort of taken a central role today in it, the policy response to the crisis. Do you see any parallels between what it did in the financial crisis in the fall of 2008 and what it's doing today? Yeah, there are a lot of parallels. I think really the Fed is following the playbook that was developed in the financial crisis. One thing that's interesting is they've really added some chapters to the playbook they have gone further. They are 
in contrast to 2008 and 9. They are now providing support for the corporate bond market, uh, lending to state and local governments, um, and doing a set of other things that they didn't do in that earlier uh, in that earlier crisis. So you know, then there was this complaint that the Fed was bailing out Wall Street instead of Main Street. But Bernanke, the chairman of the Fed, then was saying that you have to do that to save the financial system to help Main Street. But now they're not just bailing out Wall Street, are they? Yeah, that's right. As I mentioned, they uh, are supporting lending to state and local governments. They're also supporting a lot of uh, business lending, both the small and large businesses, uh, with the idea of trying to help Main Street and support uh, Main Street and regular people. Right. So the um, key difference, you know, as you were saying, is that this isn't just a financial crisis. It's a health crisis as well. Um, what what do you think could happen if the health crisis is not resolved and you know opening up occur starts to occur? If the health crisis is not resolved, right? Yeah. So I think if the health crisis is not resolved, I think we're going to have a very long, slow, painful recovery because I think people are just not going to be willing to engage in uh, full economic activity until then. When. I'm sorry, when you were at the Fed in 2008, you were there during some of the darkest days of, um, of the Great Recession and times when it really seemed we were kind of on a knife edge when things could have gone really south really fast. What was it like then to be working at the Fed? So in the time right after the Lehman Brothers uh, bankruptcy in fall of 2008, it was a scary time. There was a sense in the building of waiting for the next shoe to drop. And as you said, it was knife edge as to whether the financial system was going to uh, to totally collapse. So it was, it was a it was a scary time. People put their heads down. They got they got to work to do the work that needed to be uh, needed to be done. Um, but boy, I was with the team that did the uh, U.S. economic forecast, and that was tough given the uncertainty um, about the economic outlook at that time. And I mean, now it's probably even more uncertain. It's even harder to do a forecast because. It's a dual health crisis and financial crisis, right? Yeah, I think that's right. In economist lingo, the uh, financial crisis was really a, a, a large negative demand shock. Uh, this time around, we're having a large negative demand shock and a large negative supply shock. The supply shock being the virus, the demand shock being the follow-on reductions in spending and other economic activity. So the supply is like people can't go to work and you know you can't have workers out there. And so, you know, even if people wanted to spend money, it's not clear like how you would do that, or certainly you couldn't do it in the same pattern that you did before. Yeah, labor is a key input into uh, into production of all goods and services. So if people can't or won't work, uh, that is a really, really big supply shock. But that, of course, means that people's incomes go way down and they have both less means to spend and less desire to spend, because this is probably not the time a lot of people want to go on a Caribbean cruise. Well, that's certainly true. <laughs> um, so people also make a distinction between a lifeline and a stimulus. And a stimulus can only really work if people can go out and spend money. A lifeline is really vital when we have you know 40 million people who've filed unemployment claims and people are really worried about making rent or paying their mortgages and so on. Do you see um, a similar kind of thing going on now as compared to, was there something like that in 2008, in the fall of 2008 as well, 
a lifeline rather than just a stimulus? Well, so I think in 2008, there was a lifeline. I think the lifeline was thrown to financial sector to prevent the financial sector from collapsing. Um, there was also a big economic stimulus designed to try to boost spending. And this time, I think uh, also stimulus. But as you said, the more important thing happening now is the lifeline and trying to prevent too many businesses from going bankrupt, preventing too many individuals from getting into financial difficulties and trying to just kind of keep everything going. So when the health crisis is over, we'll be able to get the economy back again and we won't have lost too much in the meantime. And as you mentioned, like the precipitousness of the decline is incredibly striking now. Whereas, you know, in the fall of 2008, as bad as that was, it was over 19 months that we lost all those jobs. And now in 10 weeks, um, you know, one in four people in the workforce have filed for unemployment claims. And that's, we haven't seen anything that, even the Great Depression, the, the um, depths of that were um, a few years after the stock market crash. Yeah, the speed is just remarkable. Uh, the unemployment rate that before this all started was around three and a half percent or three and a half percent of the labor force, uh, you know, being unemployed. And that jumped to 15% in April and is expected to jump quite a bit higher uh, when the uh, numbers for May come out. So really the speed of decline is unprecedented. So the highest unemployment rate during the Great Depression was? About 25%. Right, we could exceed that, I guess, right? Uh, we could, I've seen forecasts of numbers around, numbers around that. And I, I think the speed of the decline reflects what's different about this episode, which is it's, uh, again, to use the economist lingo, it's a supply shock too. And a supply shock can shut things down really fast. When when you were at the Fed in you know the wake of the 2008 crisis, when did you start to see the light at the end of the tunnel? So I would say by early 2009, there was clarity that a recovery was coming. Uh, actually, anybody can go look back at um, the Fed's internal documents because they released them after five years. And so if you look at the January 2009 reports that the Fed was writing, they were correctly anticipating a kind of second half of 2009 recovery. So they, you know, they, they saw that was coming. All the caveats about great uncertainty, downside risk, but they, they correctly saw that was coming. Uh, though interestingly, it was weaker than they thought. Yeah, I mean, the there's a very tepid recovery. Um, now, so that's like four or five months after it began, right? Um, you know, after the Lehman shock, they started to see what Bernanke then called kind of green shoots, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, although, so the, the, the Lehman Brothers was really the acute phase, but uh, the, the economic downturn and the financial stresses had really started sometime before that. But, but that's right in terms of the acute, the acute phase. So now, I mean, what do you think now? I mean, I don't imagine many people are talking about a V-shaped recovery at the Fed or places, you know, we've heard about the Nike swoosh or even worse. Um, are there any lessons from the way it was resolved then that we can apply now? Or is this just, as you say, fundamentally different because it's a pandemic at its source instead of a financial collapse? I think it is fundamentally different because uh, well, because we just the, the key thing is how long until the health issue is resolved and we have a vaccine or, or effective treatment. Uh, the consensus view still is for a pretty rapid recovery in the second half of the year, 
I think that's premised on an assumption of no second wave in the uh, in the virus. Right. So I'd like to conclude, Dan, by just um, shifting the focus a little bit from what's going to happen over the next few months to what's going to happen over the longer term. You're well known in the economics profession for your research on long run growth and technical change. Do you see any big changes in the way we do things that have economic implications on as a longer consequence of this crisis? Yeah, so I think I want to I think I want to avoid any breathless pronouncements about how the world will be and the economy will be completely different uh, going forward. Because um, I think in time will be a vaccine and time will put this behind us and life in the economy will largely get back to where they were before. But that being said, I think this crisis, any crisis accelerates changes that are already underway. Uh, so you know, there are a variety of companies that were already weak and in trouble that have gone bankrupt and have disappeared from the scene. Uh, boy, a lot of people have learned how to use virtual platforms and that sure seems to suggest that, you know, people may do a lot more of that going forward. Like us doing this, you know, you in uh, one city and me in another doing this interview. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, virtual stuff was a thing before, but it was kind of at the fringes and now it's front and center. And everybody's had to learn how to do it. So exactly. They've sort of overcome that learning cost. Yeah, exactly. All right, Dan. Well, thank you very much for these insights. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you today. Yeah, this was fun. Delighted to, uh, delighted we got a chance to do it. Thanks for listening. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and see the work on our site, you can log in to www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Have a good day.